Hello everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. I have another great episode for you today, and I hope you enjoy. If you have the time and the means, I'm asking you to please support this podcast. Ideally, if you could sign up on Patreon and support Lockdown Law for as little as $5 per month, you'll get early access to episodes. I'd really appreciate your support. Again, Lockdown Law on Patreon, and you can join the community. Or you could visit my website, www.lockdownlaws.com, and donate. You can also email me through the website and let me know what's been your favorite episode so far. And finally, if nothing else, I would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast. Either way, thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, I'm honored to have on this podcast a public defender. Um, sir, you've been a criminal defense attorney for, what, about 10 years now? Not quite, about nine years, almost nine years. Okay, and you've worked in two different counties in the state of California, is that correct? That is correct. Well, you're a public servant, and I want to thank you for your service. I know it's it's not an easy job. Thank you, I appreciate that. <laughs> so why did you want to become a criminal defense attorney? That's a good question. It all starts back when I was 17 years old. So me and a buddy actually got in trouble, and that was my motivation for wanting to become a lawyer. We both uh, were being kind of foolish. We were 17 and 18 years old, and we were smoking some marijuana. We were riding my uh, Isuzu Trooper, four-wheeling it. And my buddy, he was sitting passenger. I was driving as we were driving up to the four-wheel spot, he saw an abandoned couch on the side of the road. And so as boys often are, fascinated with fire, my buddy's like, hey, man, I want to burn that couch. I was sitting in the driver's seat, and I thought to myself, well, I don't care. Go ahead. Burn it if you want. And I never got out of the car. I sat in my car, and I watched my buddy drag this couch out from the bushes that it was sitting in and he dragged it out into a dirt area nice and safe made sure that there was nothing else that it could burn we were next to some railroad tracks <clears throat> and uh he proceeded to try to light this it was a corner couch it was a piece of a sectional but it was the corner piece and he just tried lighting the top of the couch but it wouldn't really light there's no igniter and it's just an awkward way to try to light a couch trying to light the seat of it so I yelled out my window. I said, hey, turn the couch over, flip it over so there's a nice air pocket underneath it and throw that phone book underneath it. Light the phone book. And so he did. And within a couple seconds, that chair was ignited. Black smoke going up into the air. And some mountain bikers, or BMX bikers rather, they saw the smoke and they called the fire department, rightfully so. You know, this is California. We're dealing with all the wildfires. People got scared. And it was stupid. We shouldn't have done it. But we were young kids. And so we ultimately got pulled over because they gave the vehicle a description. 
and the police saw my vehicle driving around town. They pulled us over and interrogated us, questioned us, ended up arresting us. And uh, I sat in juvenile hall for a couple of weeks. My buddy went to actual county jail because he was oh, an wow. adult. I was a minor, so I had to go to juvie. Turned out my experience was worse in juvenile <laughs> hall. Uh, it was basically uh, 20, 23 and one lockdown for me because they didn't have any regular cells open. They had to put me in the maximum security cells for the juveniles. And so I had the most terrible experience sitting in a juvenile hall as a 17-year-old with like a 3.8 GPA about to graduate high school. And this oh, stupid wow. mistake landed me in jail. And the worst part about it is that I told the truth. I told the police officers exactly what happened. I was naive, I was young, and I was scared. And I thought, honestly, that I didn't do anything wrong. In fact, I didn't get out of the car, like I said. And so, ultimately, it was my own admissions, my telling the officer that I told my friend to use the phone book to light it, is what got me booked. I was booked under the aiding and abetting accomplice theory liability. I helped my friend light that fire. And so I had to get a lawyer. First one didn't turn out so good. That was your first experience with the lawyer? That was my first experience with a lawyer. Hmm. My dad ended up firing the first one and hiring another one. The one he tried to hire actually was already representing my friend, so we couldn't get that one. That was a conflict of interest, so we ah. ended up getting the next best lawyer. But that experience, having been a good kid, never really getting in much trouble, and then landing myself in jail because of a stupid, immature, childish mistake, um, it just was quite an experience. And so that lawyer that I that I got, you know, showed the court who I really was. And I remember sitting at council table and on the other side of the courtroom was the district attorney. And I'm sitting with my lawyer and I could hear the district attorney asking the judge for CYA, which is California Youth Authority. They wanted to send me to a California Youth Authority. And I heard the district attorney say six years. I remember leaning oh my forward gosh. Wow. and looking over in disbelief. Do you want to send me to prison? <laughs> this good, goody two-shoe kid with like a great GPA, popular at school, never really been in trouble. But this lawyer, he fought for me. He showed the court who I really was. This was an innocent mistake. And I ended up getting probation and ultimately my record got sealed and expunged. And I ultimately became a lawyer because of that experience. That 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 man was, you know, my my savior. And I wanted to do that for other people. Well, that's interesting. And I know you, because um, you and I worked at the same clinic, but um, you did some nonprofit work before you even went to law school. Is that correct? Up in Northern California? I did. Yeah, I worked for, uh, I believe it was the County Jail Law Project. Man, you just brought up some... I know. Laws. It's <laughs> been a while. That was fun. That was, that. A, that was a great experience. Um, I think one of your mentors actually through that program, he was a criminal defense attorney. That's right. Dane Cameron, right? Yeah. Yeah. He was also one of my idols. That guy, he played the part, a true criminal defense He did. Player. He really, he looked the part too, didn't <laughs> he? he? Did. Yeah. 
Um, okay. So what's your favorite part of the job? Uh, I'd say my favorite part is the reward of, of, of really, you know, helping people out, the disadvantaged people, the people that are the downtrodden and the ones that, you know, we overlook a lot of the times. And that's generally my clientele. I'm a public defender. So we don't get the clients that have a lot of money and a lot of resources and um, defenses. My clients are usually the ones that, that did it. <laughs> and so we're having to work real hard to mitigate and, you know, show the district attorney that this person deserves a break or, you know, show, show, show them that, uh, that somebody deserves a second chance and so on and so forth. So that's the rewarding part of the job. Good. What do you think uh, makes a good prosecutor? Hmm. I think somebody that's compassionate and that can see things from both sides. Um, somebody who has uh, life experience. I think that's probably the most important characteristic of a good prosecutor is that they have life experience. They can yeah. determine what cases are really worth prosecuting, what cases are worth letting go, which people deserve second breaks. And if you have an experienced prosecutor, it's much easier to negotiate and find a middle ground. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so how do you answer this question? I'm sure you get it a lot, you know, at dinner parties or whatever. Uh, but how do you represent the worst of the worst in our society? I mean, do people ask you that question frequently? <laughs> that question, how do you represent somebody that you know is guilty? Yeah, uh, there you go. That might be a better phrase. And I, yeah, I think the, the answer to that question is you, you well, we have the constitution, right? And that's to protect all of us. And so I think when it comes down to it, we're not necessarily protecting the individual. We are, of course we are, but we're also protecting the greater principles that we all, we all want to have in place so that if you find yourself in that situation, you also are afforded a vigorous, zealous defense. You know, it's, it's unfortunate that Sometimes innocent people do get convicted and that happens because sometimes the system um, doesn't always work out. And that would happen much more frequently if defense lawyers kind of just gave up on the guilty ones and didn't fight just as hard for every client, regardless of guilt or innocence. So I think the answer is that we don't fight necessarily for the client. We're fighting for the rights of all of us. Ah, okay. That makes sense. And, um, I mean, even John Adams, he was our second president. He defended the British soldiers in 1770 who fired, you know, upon what was the early Americans. And those soldiers were like the most hated people in the country at the time. Um, and, you know, they believed in that principle that, you know, the Constitution really is set up theoretically to protect defendants. It's a high burden of proof. There's the Brady rule, um, you know, where you have to turn over um, exculpatory evidence, right? Absolutely. And so, yeah, I think we lose sight of that. I, I feel like almost today we've lost the, um, you know, the presumption of innocence almost. I feel like most people think, oh, well, hey, the prosecutor wouldn't go through all this trouble, um, you know, if they didn't have overwhelming evidence. You know, that's a valid point. And that's actually one of the most difficult things to kind of, 
impressed upon jurors when when you are going to have a trial. Um, it's there's a there's a process in a jury trial, and the first stage of of the jury trial is jury selection, and and in, it's that jury selection where you your job as the defense lawyer is to instill and inspire these these potential jurors to uphold the law and follow the law and really understand the law so that they can, you know, be the advocate for justice. And, you know, you're not asking them to necessarily uh, do something just because you want them to. You want them to really uh, pay attention and and own the the, uh, the standards, like the presumption of innocence and the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt, because it may be them one day, and they'd want those same protections. Yeah, I mean, everyone should listen to that podcast uh, that, through the Innocence Project. Man, it is just uh, troubling um, what we've done to people, so... It is, uh, uh, like I said in the beginning, this is a public service, just like a prosecutor is a public service, and uh, thankful you're doing it. So, what? Is, but what is your least favorite part of the job? The least favorite part of the job is not getting results that I want, um, and that can be super frustrating. I mean, when you have a client that, that you really believe in and that you know deserves a second chance, and, and this is... More, I'm talking about cases where you don't have a defense at trial, where you're trying to negotiate a resolution for a particular client, and and you know what the right outcome is in your heart of hearts, and oftentimes the DAs just don't see it from your perspective, and maybe the judge doesn't either, but you have that connection to the client because you're their lawyer, right? It's not the district attorneys and the judges don't have that inside kind of connection to the client and their life and their experiences and and what they've been through and so it can be super frustrating when you know all of those things and you know the hardships that a particular person has been through and there is a just and fair resolution but but you just can't get there because you don't have the power you don't have the control over the charges and over the sentences and and you can only do so much. So that is probably the most frustrating thing in this profession. I know. It's hard not to take it personal and not to take it home with you, huh? It is. Oftentimes I think, can I still do this? Am I, am I, am I worn out? Well, yeah, I would think it's a stressful job. I mean, that's how I would answer the question in my mind if I was a public defender. Um, I'm sure it's high stress, right? It is. But you got to be able to compartmentalize and, you know, it's, you got to be able to not internalize everything because, you know, it, you won't last, you will get burnt out. Yeah. Well, so um, the next segment, I'm really curious because I've never been in a jail or a prison. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> it's like the, the life of an inmate. So let's just start off. So you want to go set up a meeting with your client and your clients in jail. Um, do you like call them on the phone? How long do you get with them? Uh, are the guards nice to you? Like, just walk me through that whole process. Well, let's start with before COVID. <laughs> so oh, before yeah. COVID, uh, we, I would make uh, appointments either by uh, the jail website or I would just go and sign up at the jail when I wanted to see my client. So, for example, act, most of the time I never made appointments. I'd just go to the jail. I'd have a list of clients I needed to see before court. And I tend to kind of 
go and knock out all my in custody clients all at once. So I would in the past before COVID, I'd have seven, eight clients that I'm ready to go see. And I'd spend the better part of a day at the county jail. And I'd sign in in the morning and then I'd go to the to the to the uh, visiting room, which is within the jail. And I'd wait and they'd bring my client to me. And we have a basically a, a cell. It's like a good size cell, maybe uh, maybe 15 feet by 15 feet. And there'd be a table in there and a phone. And that phone would be used for me to let the deputies know when I was ready for a switch, when I was ready for them to take the inmate that I was with and then bring me my next client. And deputies are are fine. There's no issues in the jail. They're always polite, respectful, and they understand that we're there to do our jobs and they're there to we understand they're they're there doing their jobs. So I've I've very, very rarely had issues in the in the in the county jail. And the process is is smooth. You know, they don't um, have any uh, there's no rules about how much time you can spend with your client. I can spend as much time as I want wow. there talking about the cases. In fact, they oftentimes will call, you know, just the office whenever they want to talk about their cases. And if they really want to talk in person, I'll go into the jail and we'll talk about their case. But we need to have that flexibility and that time because there's a lot of police reports. There's a lot of investigations. The clients need to be able to see the reports, read the reports, because oftentimes the clients are our best defense. They're the ones with the inside knowledge. They're the ones with, you know, the, the, the facts and circumstances that can help us, you know, maneuver the case and, and, and build the defense. So that is extremely important part of our job is, is going to the jail and, and seeing clients. Um, and in jail, how many hours a day do you have to like, you know, exercise, recreate, stuff like that? Well, I, I think that if you're not in like a lockdown uh, pod um, where you're in, 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 a, in, a, in a situation where you've been punished or something like that, I think generally there is a lot of uh, freedom within the jail unless it's bedtime or uh, unless the jail kind of locked down a section for a search or something like that. Generally speaking, whenever I've gone to the jail, you know, I see inmates walking around, conversing, playing cards, taking showers. I mean, they can pretty much live within the jail as long as they're following the rules, being respectful, you know, not causing problems. But if there is a problem, that can all change quickly. Yeah, and I'm sure like every jail, every county, every state is different, right? Even even the the two counties that you've worked in, were there some big differences between those two counties? Well, this county uh, where I work in now, I'm able to actually see um, kind of the, the open pods and the wings of the jail, and I can visibly see, you know, the inmates doing their thing. In the last county that I worked at, I didn't have that ability. They, they, the visiting rooms were kind of completely uh, separated from the the areas where the inmates were, and they would bring your client to you to this visiting room. So I would really have no idea how how the inmates were interacting and how how they were living in the jail in the other county. But this county, there's a lot more. Uh, you can see everything kind of from where 
um, you're visiting the client, at least in one part of the jail. Interesting. And are they allowed to work in some capacity? Yeah, there's kitchen duties. Um, I'm sure that some of the inmates are working on like gardening. And I know that uh, there was one particular program that the jail um, started where they were taking bikes, used bikes and fixing them up and then um, donating them to children. And I think the inmates were involved in that too. So wherever they can employ inmates and, um, and, and uh, do it safely and, and yeah, I mean, generally speaking, it's not, it's not a situation where you're totally locked down and you can't do anything. And are they given some sort of help um, transitioning into normal life once they get out? Mm, that depends. So if, if you're going to, for example, if, if a, a client is going to take a probation deal, like let's say I've negotiated felony probation for a particular client and they're serving their time and they're going to be released on probation after they serve whatever amount of jail time was ordered, they certainly will be um, able to seek the resources of the county and their probation officer and rehabs if that's what's something if that's something that's you know part of the case. So they definitely um, have resources and guidance if they're on probation. Um, certain times they will have just be they'll, they'll just have served a sentence and they won't be getting probation. In other words, probation may not have been an option for this particular client because let's say they've had probation a couple times before, or the crime is such that you know the district attorney wouldn't offer probation, and you just have to negotiate the best deal you can. Those clients don't necessarily get resources and any guidance once they're released. Sometimes clients don't want that. They want a county jail sentence with no probation, so they don't have to have that supervision. They don't have to have guidance. They just want to be left. That's to interesting. Own. Yeah. Wow. So, like, are they given money? Like, here's a hundred bucks to at least cover, you know, your first day or two to get no, on your feet. <laughs> not that I'm aware of. I think no. maybe you might get a bus pass or something like that, but okay. I, I don't generally hear of things like that. No. Interesting. Well, let's go to some of the um, criminal law 101 foundation issues. Um, what's the difference between a sp- specific intent crime? and a general intent crime? So I guess the best way to uh, explain this would be through some examples. So generally speaking, a general intent crime is when you don't have to specifically intend the result of your act. You just have to do something that's illegal. For example, DUI is probably a very easy to understand example. When you drink and drive, you don't have to intend to get behind the car under the influence and drive. You just have to be under the influence and drive a car. So we don't care why you're under the influence or why you're driving. All we care about on a general intent crime is that you meet the elements of the crime. And so DUI is a perfect example. If you happen to be behind the car or behind the wheel of a car and you happen to be driving impaired or with a blood alcohol level of over 0.08, you can be found guilty of a DUI. Now, compare that to, let's say, a first-degree burglary, where 
they're charging you with breaking and entering into a place with the intent to commit a felony therein or theft. They actually have to prove that when you walked into that place that you intended to commit a crime, a felony or a theft. So let's say that somebody is drunk, stumbling home from the bar and they think they're walking up to their house and they start wiggling the door handle and the homeowner comes and they become afraid and they call the police. This person's breaking into my house. Well, that person's defense, assuming it actually is the case that he was drunk, stumbling home and didn't realize the neighbor's home was actually not his, would have the obvious defense of, no, I was not intending to break into your home. I thought this was my home. And if a jury believes that his intent was truly to come to his home, that would be an example of where they don't have the evidence to support the specific intent to commit that crime. That makes sense? It does. So general intent crimes can be easier to prove than um, specific intent crimes. Much easier. Much easier. For trespassing, for example, if you happen to be on somebody else's property, it doesn't matter if you intended to be there or not. You're trespassing. You're on their property. That's an example of a general intent crime. Another cornerstone of criminal law is the Fourth Amendment search and seizure issues. And um, the Supreme Court case of Terry versus Ohio is probably the most significant um, case from the Supreme Court on this amendment. Would you agree? Very important case. Yes, I agree. Give us a rough overview. So Terry v. Ohio is a case where the police had uh, observed a few gentlemen, three gentlemen, I believe, um, what appeared to be to the officer then casing. The officer thought they were looking to rob a place. And so the officer stopped and detained these individuals. And after he detained them, he decided he was going to pat them down and frisk them to see if they had any weapons on them. Turns out they had guns. At least two, I believe, had guns. Um, And so the lawyers representing the defendants in that case filed a motion to suppress evidence based on the fact that the officer didn't have the right to search them for weapons. Well, there's kind of a two-part analysis that came out of this case. Um, One, that in order to initially stop these individuals, the officer had to have reasonable suspicion to believe that a crime was afoot or that a crime was happening, or that a crime had happened. Um, So basically, a crime's about to happen, a crime's happening, or a crime happened. If an officer has reasonable suspicion to believe any one of those three things, he can detain you. And then further, if he can articulate specific facts that he believes that individual is dangerous or armed, he can do what's called a Terry frisk or a, 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 a frisk, a pat down. And it's limited. They can't do a full search, but they can pat you down and check and see if you have any weapons on you, any bulges in your pockets that might be a gun or a knife. And so this officer testified that based on his training and experience, that he believed that these individuals looked suspicious that they were casing, looking in and out of the windows. And so therefore, 
detained him. He further testified that in his experience, people that are casing or about to rob a place would oftentimes have weapons. And so that allowed this officer to articulate those facts and therefore legally pat and frisk these individuals. But it needs to be a situation where the officer can actually articulate those facts. It can't be just a hunch or suspicion. So More than a mere hunch. Right. That's all I remember from that case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, so do you actually like still quote that case or is it like so widespread that it's just a given? It's in a motion that, or a brief. If, if you, if that issue presents itself in your case, you certainly would. You'd certainly brief the issue. You'd file the motion to suppress evidence and you'd argue to the judge that this officer didn't have the reasonable suspicion first to detain the client. And further, he didn't have any articulable uh, uh, specific facts uh, to actually believe that this person was armed and dangerous. The officer was just fishing. Okay. So Terry v. Ohio, that is a very significant Supreme court case dealing with the fourth amendment. And in that case, you know, the police and the government had really good facts. You know, this was an experienced detective. Um, I think he was from Cleveland or a big city like that. He had been working there for many years and I think he saw these guys walking around this building like 23 times. So it's more than a mere hunch. He goes up and pats him down and he actually finds a gun, right? Right. And I was going to mention that, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting when you have the, the, the officer who actually found the evidence and you're trying to fight and say that this officer you know, was just fishing and that this officer didn't have the reasonable, articulable, specific facts. But then there's actually a gun involved. So a judge is is looking at all the circumstances and the totality of the circumstances. And the fact that a gun was found, I think, weighs into the analysis. Unfortunately, it shouldn't, but it does, because then it leads the, 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 the magistrate and the DA to believe that, no, this officer obviously knew what he was doing because look what turned up a gun, right? Yeah. Yeah. It says here he was, yeah, he was from Cleveland and uh, he had been patrolling the area for many years. So um, good detective work. You know, he caught the guys before they were about to commit a criminal act and they had weapons on them. So um that case makes sense, and that's why it's such an important case. And so I think this doctrine that you're going to explain for us is really significant. So the fruit of the poisonous tree is actually a doctrine that extends from another doctrine, which is called the exclusionary rule. And the exclusionary rule is based on, uh, well, the idea is that if the police or the state do something illegal, and search you without uh, the right requirements, that evidence that they found um, is gonna be suppressed and it's gonna be excluded. And the reason that we do that is because we wanna deter um, bad police conduct, essentially. Um, and so, for example, let's say the police officers barge into a house uh, without a search warrant and they find evidence 
Well, if you file the proper motion and you litigate the issue and it's determined that there really wasn't um, any right for the officers to come into that house, there was no exigent circumstances, they had no search warrant, well, that evidence is going to be suppressed. Um, so the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine is an extension of that where any evidence derived from that illegally obtained evidence is also suppressed. It's it's the the fruit of that tree. It's tainted because... Even if you did commit a criminal act, right? Right. Now, there's some exceptions to these rules. So uh, the first exception would be if the police came across that evidence with an independent source, uh, mm. not, not from the original uh, illegal move that they made. I'm trying to think of an example. Let's see. Like, let's say an independent, uh, let's say an, an informant or a good Samaritan informed the police of um, evidence that would be located in a certain area and the police uh, follow up. And that is the area where the evidence was found. That makes sense. But, yeah. They, 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 they can still use it because they were able to find it with an independent source, not the original illegal way that they found it the, in the first place. There's another exception, which is the inevitable discovery dis uh, exception, which is if the police would have inevitably found it, then it kind of cures the defect and they're allowed to use that evidence. And the third exception is if there's attenuation between the illegal activity and the discovered evidence. I think the, the most important principle is if the government, let's say it turns out that a sheriff issued this affidavit to support a warrant. And that affidavit was um, basically based on lies. Right. Whatever they discover um, in the course of serving that warrant is not admissible towards proving your guilt towards a crime. Is that a fair overview? It is, unless one of those exceptions applies. Got it. And the okay. district attorney, of course, is going to try to find any one of those, try, try, to, try to fit facts that will, try to find facts that will fit any one of those exceptions. And there's actually a fourth exception, which is the good faith exception. Um, That's got to be a really helpful tool if you're a criminal defense attorney, this doctrine, I would think. Absolutely. Yeah. So here's a question I have um, that I'm still not 100% sure on. Does everyone have a right to a public defender? Like, you know, if you run a red light and it's a speeding ticket, you probably don't have a right to a public defender for that. Um, and also, what does it mean, like, if you can't afford a defense attorney? You know, you get a public defender. Is there a certain income requirement? There is. And typically when you're charged with a crime, that's not an infraction, a crime that's punishable by jail. Um, you're, you can get a lawyer and you can have a lawyer appointed to you. And the requirement is that you basically can't afford to hire private counsel. And different counties, I think, have different thresholds about how much you can make or how little you make in order to qualify for a public defender. So in the last county that I worked in, 
you were to fill out a financial declaration, submit it to the judge, and the judge would look over the financial declaration and determine whether or not you meet that threshold requirement in order to be appointed a public defender. In other words, you have to make less than a certain amount. In this county that I work in currently, the uh, I, I don't see that as strictly applied. It seems that if you ask for and request a public defender, the court will appoint one. Um, but generally speaking, public defenders are reserved for those that can't afford to hire private counsel. Got it. And that um, lessens the burdens on your workload, right? It it does. Yeah, to an extent when you, when when not everybody can get a public defender. Yeah, you're right. Well, and our resources are limited at a certain point as a society. They are. They are. Yeah. Well, that brings me to another question I always had. I mean, does this offend you when people say, oh, you know, rich people can afford better defense attorneys because, you know, they can hire, you know, the Johnny Cochran's of the world. As a public defender, does that bother you? <laughs> I feel not, like that not, would bother me if I was a public defender. Like, wait, what? I'm not really I'm doing a pretty good I mean, job for my clients here. Yeah. You know. It doesn't really offend me, but I do think that philosophically, I don't I, I would I would I would think it would be a better system if if there there wasn't kind of the private sector in criminal defense. It opens the doors for a lot of uh, a lot of things that aren't necessarily related to just the defense of this individual, whereas a public defender doesn't have any other incentive, any other vested interest, nothing else, no other motivations except for defending the individual who he was appointed to defend. And, and you know, granted, public defenders are extremely busy. They have high caseloads. They got, um, you know, a lot on their plate. <clears throat> but, and, and that's why it doesn't offend me, because if you can afford to hire a private lawyer and you have, you know, that private lawyer's entire office um, fighting for your case. You got, you know, your own investigators, you got maybe a firm of lawyers that are working on your behalf. They have maybe less of a caseload and they can devote more time and energy and investigation to your case. I mean, the reality is that we can't spend the same amount of time on every single case. You have to kind of, uh, pick and choose which, which cases are going to require more time and more energy than others. And that's just the sad reality of public defense. I hate to admit it, but it's true. Well, and it might be a good thing that we have private defense attorneys. I mean, this is a capitalistic society, right? It is. (laughs) Um, No, I think that it's good that we have both options um, to be honest. And every public defender I've met, um, I have a lot of respect for, um, this is a heavy burden, you know, people don't take it lightly. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And on top of the fact, and uh, uh, to, to, to make it even more of a, a heavy burden, if you happen to be a, a personality type that internalizes things or takes things personally or kind of can't let go, it can make doing this job very difficult because you're dealing with real people, real life circumstances, you know, real, uh, real issues that, you know, sometimes it's hard to keep at the office. Oh, yeah. So a defendant can opt for a trial by judge instead of a jury trial. In your experience, how often does a defendant opt for a trial by judge instead of a jury? 
Very, very uh, seldom does that happen. See, that, that's so surprising to me because I feel like if I was ever in this situation, and hopefully I never am, um, I might roll my di- I might roll the dice with a judge because well, I a- feel like I don't know they're just more experienced. Um, and maybe it's just because out here in California it's a different world. I, I trust the system more. I went to law school in the Midwest, and maybe in some of the states there, I, I would prefer for a jury trial. But um, that's surprising that people don't exercise that right more frequently. Well, I think um, there are certain types of cases that are better for a judge than a jury. If you have a case that's... that's So do you advise your clients that sometimes? Uh, yeah, they, we do. We yeah. do. It depends on... It really depends on the case. If you have a case that's very uh, technical and legally based and and you're making very technical arguments and you need, you know, like you said, the experience of a judge who understands the law, who understands the elements of a crime, and you know that, that, that this attorney is going to have a difficult time proving these elements and that you want a very close, watchful eye on this, you, you might be better off with a judge. But a lot of the time, you know, we're fighting an uphill battle. And our, our, our best chance of getting a favorable result is with 12 different people, 12 different uh, walks of life coming together and, and having to discuss this case. They all have to be unanimous they have to come back with a guilty verdict in order for your client to be found guilty, all 12 of them. And so that's not necessarily an easy thing to convince 12 people of, of the guilt of, of an individual when, when all 12 of these people are going to have different opinions and, and, and see the facts differently. And so if you have you know, emotionally charged cases and you have uh, cases where, where it's more, more fact-based than, than legally based, you may be better off. You're, you're more likely better off with a jury. Yeah. I don't know. My own family doesn't like me. So um, <laughs> the judges I work with seem to like me. So I don't know, maybe my, <laughs> I have a jaded view. Um, but I think that's a really interesting topic because I feel like most people don't know that you have that right. Yeah, like people would be surprised to know that. Yeah. You can waive your right to a jury trial. Yeah. Another thing I'm curious about are plea deals and how they are made. Um, I mean, does the prosecutor call you and make the offer? Do you make the offer to the prosecutor? Does it depend? Um, like, what are the semantics of that situation? So it depends. It depends a lot on the, uh, the players involved, um, how well you know the DA, how well your working relationship um, is. Um, so, for example, in my practice now, um, typically the district attorney will either email or call me and let me know what the offer is on my clients. Um, and then I usually will <clears throat> look at the offer, evaluate the case, and then talk to my client about the offer. Um, oftentimes I'll counter offer, uh, and start negotiating the case before even, uh, kind of addressing the client because sometimes, you know, I have a, I have a, I have an idea of what the case is worth, and of course, the, cl- cl- the client's not going to argue with me about trying to get him a better deal, right? So, if if I, I'd rather sometimes not waste the, the resources and the time going and and talking to a client about an offer when I know there's uh, 
work for me to do on it and, and to, to negotiate and counteroffer. And then when I get in a position where I think we're much closer and there's a much more fair resolution on the table, that's when th- th- then I might, you know, relate to the client where we're at in terms of negotiation. And then the client obviously decides, you know, do I want to take this offer? Do I want you to keep negotiating harder for me? Or do I want to take this to trial? Or do I want to kind of put pressure on the system and see, you know, how I can negotiate further down the line, further closer to a trial date? And what percentage of your trials are misdemeanors versus felonies? Well, right now I'm in a felony department. So we have um, public defender's offices usually will have misdemeanor lawyers. They'll have drug court lawyers. They'll have mental health court lawyers, and then they'll have kind of the felony uh, lawyers. Um, some offices handle um, some, in my last county, for example, we had a system where there was the pre, for felonies, there was the preliminary hearing lawyer. And then after the preliminary hearing, that case would get assigned to a trial lawyer. And, and just so that I'm clear, a preliminary hearing is the first critical stage of, of um, a, the first real hearing uh, to establish whether or not there's probable cause or reasonable cause to hold a defendant to answer to the charges. So that's where the district attorney has to present evidence as to each element of the crime uh, to a certain degree, to a certain standard, a probable cause standard. And if the judge finds that the district attorney has met these elements, and it's a very low threshold, the, the individual, the defendant who's charged with that crime is held to answer. It's what it's called. And then the case is, is certified for arraignment for, uh, for a trial. So if in, 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 the, in, the, in the county I worked in previous, you'd have one group of lawyers that handles just the prelims. And then once the case makes it past that preliminary hearing stage, the case is assigned to the trial lawyer who then handles negotiating the case or preparing that case for trial and actually trying it. In the county I'm in now, we handle everything vertically from we get assigned the case at after arraignment and then we handle the preliminary hearing and we handle everything. That makes there. sense. Right. And I think it's a better that's a better system than than the kind of horizontal way. Um mm-hmm. well actually you know, I kind of forget which term is for which, but bottom line is the system where a single lawyer represents the defendant from the beginning to the end, I think is a better system because you're more familiar with the facts. You have the client from the beginning to the end. You don't kind of have to go back to the prelim attorney and say, Hey, what do you think about this case? What do you think about this? Uh You got it all. Um, And that's the way I practice. Now I handle just felonies, but a lot of the times the client who's charged with a felony will oftentimes be on probation for, several misdemeanors or they'll have other misdemeanors they're charged with along with the felony other other complete separate cases or they might have misdemeanor charges charged along with a felony charge got it can you explain the insanity defense so the insanity defense is basically where you are you're you're telling the court that the client did it but the client shouldn't be shouldn't be liable. Essentially, they're not culpable for the crime. They're not responsible because um, they were not in the proper state of mind. Essentially, um, 
there's actually a standard that we follow in California. It's called the McNaughton, McNaughton standard. Um, and that's two elements uh, that the defendant has to suffer from a mental defect or a disease at the time of the crime and that the defendant didn't know the nature or the quality of the criminal act or committed uh, or that the act was wrong um, because of the mental defect or disease. So, for example, let's say somebody is suffering from uh, schizophrenia or has a mental break. And at that time, um, they commit a crime. I actually had a case um, that that kind of fit this this uh, legal defense because he had been suffering from schizophrenia and um, had lit fire to a cardboard yard at an ag company. And so um, that individual, my client, had been making bizarre statements, acting bizarre, and um, there was evidence to all of this. Um, and so it was determined after having my client evaluated and through a lot of investigation that he actually was undiagnosed with schizophrenia. He was an undiagnosed schizophrenic. I got him diagnosed and we got treatment for him. Um, but that was a case where I could have run that defense. But the problem with that defense and the risk that you take with that defense is that if you are found uh, uh, not guilty by reason of insanity, then you are committed to a state hospital. Um, and so the, 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 the fear there is that it's not like you're given a determinate sentence. You don't have a certain amount of time that you're guaranteed to serve and then you're released. Once you are uh, taken to the state hospital, the hospital actually submits reports to the court and determines whether or not you're safe and no longer a danger to the community. And so the hospital can actually continue to extend your commitment indefinitely. Um, and that's a very big concern when it comes to pleading somebody um, with the insanity defense. Because Interesting. you don't want to be stuck in a state hospital your whole life. You, you might be better off just negotiating a deal where you well, get a the, determinate term and you're, you're guaranteed to be released from jail after a certain amount of time. Yeah, the unknown. I could see that bothering people. Right. And there, there's, I mean, we, we, we know we have clients that have pled that way and that, you know, are in hospitals much longer than you would have ever expected them to be. Hmm. The insanity defense is very interesting to me. I mean, if you think about it one way, almost everybody who commits a criminal act, you know, is, has got some sort of mental defect. I mean, the most serious ones. And obviously there's exceptions. So it's like, why do we even have that? But, you know, on the other hand, there are some people that, you know, have some serious issues and they, they can't form the requisite intent, which is the whole purpose. If you take a step back, the whole purpose of the criminal law system is mens rea, where, you know, we get into somebody's mind. And that's why right. cold-blooded killers are treated differently than people who kill in the heat of passion, Right. And right, so right. I understand both sides of this one. This one is interesting. And every state is different. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts and there's this podcast called small town dicks. And it's <laughs> about, it's about these detectives in a small town in USA. And um, 
actually one of the ladies on there is she is the voice of Lisa Simpson. Okay. Um, and it's, it's a really great podcast and the police officers who are on this podcast, they, they're just really good. It's very classy the way they tell the stories and they do a good job. But one of the episodes that was just so horrific, it's the first time I've ever cried during a podcast. Um, it's about this police officer who's just a really nice guy and a great police officer, well-known in his community. And he gets um, shot and killed basically at a stoplight by some random lady who is just having a bad day. And she's, you know, mentally, you know, not there. Um, So it's really sad. And the widow's on there. But anyways, you know, this is in Oregon. So every state is different. But the lady got off on the insanity defense. And in Oregon you actually get field trips. And so what happened was she got to go to this water park and she almost ran into the widow with the, with her daughters. Wow. Um, and you know, they get to go to movies and stuff like that. And it's a small town in Oregon. So, um, that just really did not sit well with me that, you know, somebody can, can murder this father and police officer and still be able to go to the water park, to movies, and and run into the victims in in the same town. Um, But it sounds like California is different. Um, And this is a complicated issue, the the insanity defense. And again, I, you know, you can kind of see both sides to it, but um, it is a very complicated issue, you know, and uh, just on what you were saying about going to the water park, the, uh, the, the prisons, um, you know, you get, I've heard, I don't know that this is 100% true, but I think at certain state hospitals, you actually have access to certain kinds of foods and things that you wouldn't necessarily have if you were in prison. But again, you're generally in a locked facility. A lot of these state hospitals are akin to a prison in terms of you can be reprimanded, you have certain rules you have to follow. There's times that you can be in and out of your cell um, or your room. Um, but but in, in any event, none of these places, I think, are, are you know, where somebody would like to be confined for an extended period of time. So it's Yeah, just- for the most part, I understand. And, you know, in my practice, I have dealt with, you know, a lot of people with mental health issues. And so it is legit. I mean, there are some people that really can't tell right from wrong. I mean, Absolutely. yeah, I mean, unless mental you have... Ex- health- Mental health is a huge part of criminal defense. I mean, I, I would I would say that a very large percentage of my clients in my cases have mental health um, elements to them. I mean, if 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 as I think in today's world we consider uh, somebody who's addicted to alcohol, alcoholism, or or extreme heroin addiction or meth addiction. I mean, these things I think today are considered uh, mental health issues and and can cause a lot of mental health issues. They can exasperate issues that um, were unknown and, 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 and create mental health issues just, just from the abuse of these things. Right. And that's why the insanity defense is so interesting to me because, again, it's like, where do you draw the line? And I think from what I can interpret from the law is – you have to be able to know right from wrong. I mean, if we, if we had to do a, a gross summary, that's, that's the basic 
uh, principle of the insanity defense, right? Absolutely. Because we don't, I mean, the whole point of punishment is to deter conduct. And so if you don't know, if, 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 if you didn't know, if you didn't know what you were doing and, and you have no kind of, uh, appreciation for what you've done, then what is the punishment going to do to that individual? They won't even understand the punishment or why That's they're a great point. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, that kind of leads me to the next question. And this is more of a public policy question, I guess. So, um, if you want to punt on it, you can, but I think this is such an important issue because there's clearly a problem in my eyes with mass incarceration in this country. You know, I've said this before, but what really makes it stick out in my head is you look around the globe and you, you know, we have, I think 365 million people, you know, India has a billion, China has over a billion and we still incarcerate more people more of our citizens than any other country and um i think it's by far so there's an issue um so if you're you know president how would you fix the problem (laughs) well it's uh there's a couple issues i think i think first of all we we as as a society um we kind of pick and choose what we think is worth prosecuting. And that kind of comes down from the legislatures and into the county's district attorney's offices. And ultimately I think the district attorneys have discretion about what they think is important to prosecute and what they think can, can be let go or what can be treated. They sure have a lot of discretion, don't they? They do. Absolutely. I mean, a district attorney can dismiss a case. And That's a whole nother topic. I mean, we give, we give them so much power. Absolutely. And, and, and so if, if they have that power to decide what crimes are worth prosecuting and which are not, um, they can, they can make a huge difference in the, uh, the, the, the numbers, right? So if we're prosecuting, uh, possession of marijuana, uh, or, or methamphetamine or other drugs, as opposed to treating those things, um, well, that, that, that adds to those numbers and a large number of incarcerated people are incarcerated because of drugs uh, or addiction or mental health. And so I think that how we treat or how we address these societal issues has a big impact on, on incarceration. And then you add on top of that, consider the fact that in this country, you have a lot of states uh, that have private prisons. And so yep. if you yep. just think about That's that a really for a important minute, point. Yeah, there's an incentive there for lobbyism and for certain political groups to, uh, you know, push for heavy prosecutions and and, 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 and and so on and so forth. So that, I think, is something that should should change and stop. <clears throat> and there shouldn't there should not be a a financial gain from uh, criminal law. Yeah, period. Well, and you don't have to respond to this, but in my opinion, you know, the history of racism has to be talked about. Um, You know, I believe that minority communities have been targeted and the statistics support that. Um, And so 
that definitely needs to be discussed and emphasized. And like you said, um, a lot of it comes from the laws. I mean, we're passing some stupid laws with, you know, mandatory minimums that give judges very little flexibility, Um, especially with, yeah, with drugs. I mean, you look at how many people have been incarcerated for marijuana, which is now legal and a lot of states. Um, so it's just, it's a shame. It's a huge problem in society. Um, I don't know how to fix it. Um, but especially when you consider that those, that those types of crimes really target certain socioeconomic classes. And yes, like you said, the, the poor, the minorities, um, and those are the ones that really take, take the, the brunt of, of, of the, the, the prosecutions. Well, I think uh, people in California don't understand this either, that it is still illegal under federal law. And I practice in federal court, and some of the federal judges are still asking my client that question, you know, if they smoke marijuana. And <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, we've made progress. We've made a lot of progress, but in some ways it feels like it still blows my mind, you know. There's still a lot of progress to be made. There you go. Okay. Well said. So how has COVID impacted your practice? Um, Are you still, is there still jury selection and are you still doing trials? So COVID has impacted my practice um, in a way that's, that's good and bad. Um, It's, it's, we've been working remotely, um, a lot of us, uh, or those that, that choose to work from home and that have access to the courts through through uh, GoToMeeting or Zoom, things like that. And so me personally, I have been almost exclusively working from home, uh, signing into the court through a portal and appearing by, by audio or video. Um, my clients uh, sometimes will do the same, some will appear in court if they're ordered to, and others are in custody. Uh, the jail is actually utilizing the online portals, and uh, the, the the in custody clients are appearing in court through video, just like I am. And so, um, it's it's good and bad. It's good because I think the at least for me, I've realized that being in court and sitting in court and waiting for your case to be called is, and it's a gigantic waste of time. A lot of the time. I mean, I thought this before COVID happened, we'd we'd go to court at eight 30 in the morning and you'd have four or five cases that you have that day. And you'd be in court until noon. Your cases wouldn't even necessarily get called before noon. You come back at one 30 and you might get out of court at 3, 3.30, 4. Why? Because you're sitting, waiting for the judge to call all the other cases. All the other lawyers have to get up, represent their clients, make arguments, sit down, and wait for your turn. And so what I've found is that when you're sitting in court, you're kind of useless. You can't do much except wait your turn. At home, I can do a lot more. I can be more productive. Um, and so. That, I think, is a good thing about kind of the remote, um, the remote working yeah. with COVID. 
You can multitask better. Exactly. You can multitask better. You don't have the distraction of everything else going on in court. What about for your clients, though? Are they still allowed to get a jury trial? Or, I mean, everyone wears masks? How does that work? They are, but it's it's difficult because the court has to take smaller panels because they have to be cognizant of the social distancing and they have to follow the county mandates and rules. So Why don't they just do it outside? Yeah, right? (laughs) (laughs) Not that hard. So I think that the problem with that is everything has to be recorded. There's a court reporter, uh, all the technology in the courtroom. So okay, uh, that that causes it could well, can't they put them in a like? Can't they figure that out? Put them in a tent with some outlets. <laughs> I mean, it's frustrating for me where where um, the court I practice in they just got the video equipment to do trials, and it's yeah. been seven months. <laughs> Right. Well, let's see. Seven months. Yeah, it's been like six months. Yeah. Um, so they, so they, they, they got on the, all, all the technology pretty quickly in our county. And, and oh, so that's good. It's been it's been relatively easy to still do my job, represent my clients. The main thing is having good communication. You have to have extremely good communication and be prepared to do this remote practice because you don't have the 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 uh, ease of sitting next to your client waiting for the, the case to be called. Like before, uh, my clients were all in court waiting and I'm also in court. So if I had some last minute questions or I needed to talk to them or they needed to give me documents or present something to me in order to present to the judge, we could do all that. But now that it's remote, I, I don't necessarily have the opportunity or the chance to, to talk to them just before court or, or gather documents from them. So that makes the preparation all that more important, which if you if you're responsible about it and you're on top of your, your your cases and your clients, it's not a problem. I mean, you have the contact information. You talk to your clients well ahead of time. You make sure you're prepared that you have all the documents, and then you make the same arguments that you would make if you were present in court. You just don't have to waste all that time sitting in court waiting to do your thing. Well, what about like jury deliberations? Like, how is that working right now with COVID? You know, I actually don't know. Um, I haven't. I haven't personally had a trial go out during this COVID time. Um, I know that there's uh, a couple that have gone out in our public defender's office, but generally speaking, right now there aren't a whole lot of trials going out. And 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 I think the district attorney's office and the public defender's offices have been um, really working to negotiate cases. Um, Oh, that's that, good. That, that may be more favorable to defendants now than it than it used to be because um, you know the district attorney doesn't necessarily want to go to trial and the public defender doesn't want to argue to a jury with a face mask on. I mean, it's a very different dynamic when you got plexiglass and you got face masks and you can't see body language and you can't yeah, see facial expressions. Absolutely, it's a totally different dynamic. Hundred percent. Nobody really wants to do that. Well, and it it raises a question about due process. I mean, Absolutely. if you get convicted during this time, did you really get a fair shot? You know, did you get Absolutely. a fair trial? Absolutely. So, wow, interesting times we're living in, huh? Right. Well, to okay. bring it full circle, um, I really like the introduction. Thank you for opening up to to me and the listeners about your story and how you became an attorney. Um, of course. The irony is, of course, you know, your house almost caught on fire. (laughs) (laughs) 
And I was really, in, in all seriousness, I was really worried about you, man. I, I called you. This was, this has been a really scary couple months. I mean, me and my family, we got, we were driving and almost got stuck in that fire um, near Vacaville. Um, and it was, it was not fun. And the last, I feel like it's been like two months where you can't even like go outside. Yeah. Finally, I feel like it's starting to clear up. So at least now, you know, the skies are looking less gray and smoky. It's not as smoky in the air, the weather or the, uh, yeah. the, the, uh, I don't know what they call it, but the, the air quality index. Yeah, or whatever. Air, exactly. The air quality index is looking better. Hopefully. Oh yeah. The last couple of days have been so amazing. Yeah. Um, just to breathe fresh air, the little things in life you take for granted. It's Absolutely. Just, well, and it's like, it was so frustrating because, you know, with COVID you can't go to the gym, you know, you can't, you can't do other things like that. So I was, how I've been keeping sane is going to the beach or um, going for a walk with my family and with the fires, it's like, you couldn't even do that. Yeah, been tough. California, yeah. I feel like it's getting worse every year, but. Well, um, hopefully the worst is over. I think it is. We're coming into winter. It's going to be a good time. Ready to go snowboarding, buddy. There you go. I really appreciate your time, man, and uh, glad you and your family are safe and avoided uh, the catastrophe that was pretty close to you, huh? Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Talk to you soon. All right, Ian. Take care. Thank you. The information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only. Information in this podcast may not constitute the most up-to-date legal or other information. Listeners of this podcast should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No reader or listener to this podcast should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information on this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information contained herein and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Use of and access to this podcast or any of the resources contained within the podcast do not create an attorney-client relationship. The views expressed at or through this podcast are those of the individual author writing in their individual capacities only, not those of their respective employers. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast are hereby expressly disclaimed. The content on this posting is provided as is. No representations are made that the content is error-free.